what we read, no matter what we see, God, help us to see that you pursue us. Your love is so amazing, God. Your grace so incredible. But God, your holiness, your holiness separates us from you because we are filled with sin. So you gave your son that we might become the righteousness of God. And as we appropriate the blood of your son, as we receive that gift, as we put our trust in you, God, you do a work where you can save us from the guttermost to the uttermost. For you are able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Father. Give us an awakening, Lord, as we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Puppy, stop screaming. Oh, that'll help. I thought he, maybe he went to sleep. No, I'll win. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you, open up 1 Kings 21. We're just about finished with 1 Kings. And as we continue to work our way through, we're coming actually to toward, I guess, not to, but toward the end of, uh, of Elijah's time, and certainly the end of Ahab's time. You remember we're focused now in this section of 1 Kings on a northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called the Ten Tribes, uh, because representatives of the leadership of those ten tribes all signed a treaty to go north when the nation divided. It has nothing to do with how many people of each tribe are there, has to do with who was a part of that civil war and who decided or opted for north. So in the north you have what's called the ten tribes. Of those ten tribes, the reason they went north and their first king, he was so afraid that they would continue to worship God and go to Jerusalem and to the temple that he set up a false religious system. Now as you look at this, I think it's important as we study the scripture that we allow scripture to interpret scripture. Here's why I think that's important. When you come to the book of Revelation, you're going to be introduced to a character who does the same thing. His name, we don't know, but he's given the title, the Antichrist, or the Pseudo-Christ, really, if we want to get right down into the language, the one who provides himself in place of Christ. And as he does so, what is he going to offer to the people? A false religious system to keep the people from going toward the Lord. The very same thing that we see taking place in a northern kingdom. Every king who followed would continue to follow that same thing. But there was no king of them all as bad as Ahab. Ahab, he gets the prize for being the one who would go after wickedness the hardest. He married a woman named Jezebel. That may sound familiar to you. If you've done any study in Revelation, you'll find her name. In Revelation chapter 3, it's a member of one of the churches, Jezebel. And if we're to understand what it is that Jesus Christ in his letter to the church is trying to let us know, we need to understand what Jezebel was about. Jezebel introduced false worship, the worship of Baal. Baal was the chief Canaanite god in uh, opposition to Almighty God, to Yahweh. He was the God of the storms, the one who brought the harvest, the one who would take care of their needs. And Yahweh was to be the one who would be everything his people needed. His people would not neglect Yahweh. They would continue to worship Yahweh. They would continue to go to the temple. They would continue to offer sacrifices. But they were also going on top of the hills and offering sacrifices to Baal. 
southern kingdom would be infected even as the northern kingdom was. That in the north, Jezebel would introduce them to Baal. The second thing she would do is slaughter all the true prophets. She would go throughout the land of the northern kingdom and kill every prophet she could find. You remember a couple of weeks ago we had Elijah in a battle with the 400 priests of Baal. Fire came down from heaven. God proved himself. There's this incredible miracle. And Ahab runs into Jezebel and Jezebel still not convinced. She promises to kill Ahab by the next day. And, and uh, so Elijah runs out into the desert and he needs uh, to have a, a moment with God. And God meets him there and encourages him and, and sends him back. But as we look at that, that battle with Baal, one of the things that, that Elijah says when God meets him in the desert, he says, I'm the only one left. Now, two things I want you to understand from that. One, Elijah's in a low place and he feels alone. So it's important that we understand that. But the second thing is, when he looks around, he doesn't see anybody else. So when he says, I alone am left, he, that means that she has gone through the land to such a degree that every uh, uh, follower, every prophet of God, if you will, has gone underground, gone. In fact, later on we find out that Obadiah has hid them in caves so that Jezebel cannot destroy them. So as we look at the life of Jezebel and what Jezebel is about, what Jezebel is accomplishing, what she, what her focus is, that helps us understand what it is Jesus is laying out for us in Revelation chapter 3. So we want to understand... Tell us about Jezebel, what her focus, her, her desire, regardless of truth, is to obliterate all true worship of Almighty God and to replace it with a false religious system upon which she is the queen. She's the one in charge. And as we look at tonight, chapter 21, the way that people respond around her, we'll see she is absolutely feared of all the people in, in Israel. They're all afraid of what it is Jezebel might do to them. Well, God meets Elijah there and he, he encourages him in that place. But he does something else. He reveals himself to Elijah four different ways. You remember, he, he shows himself in a tornado. He shows himself in a, in a fire. He shows himself... In the earthquake, but the scripture says God wasn't found in those. God brings them, but, but his essence isn't there. And then he comes to him in the silent, the gentle uh, silence, still small voice. And that's where God is. And we talk about the idea. What was the problem with Ahab and Jezebel and the ten northern tribes was they were all in need of a change in the nature of man. And that change in the nature of man will only be accomplished by submission to the gentle silence of God. The judgment of God will come, but not often does that change the nature of man. That just brings the judgment that man deserves. What changes men is that still small voice of God. The psalmist would say this, be still and know that I am God. To to experience in that quiet. So God meets Elijah there. He gives him a, a job to do, an assignment. And he sends him out. And so he goes forth and he finds Elisha. You may remember, Elisha is plowing up the fields. And God, uh, Elijah comes to Elisha, just throws his mantle on him and walks away. So what Elijah has said in his action, without using words, and throwing the mantle upon him is, hey, God has chosen you to be the next prophet. If you're willing, come. We see Elisha, who we're going to see do so much more than Elijah ever does. We're going to see him bring his oxen. He's going to cook them. He's going to slaughter them. He's going to feed the villages with the meat from his oxen. And he's going to cook them on the yoke that he was plowing with to take down, to tear apart, to wipe out any way back. Part of the problem that the children of Israel always had throughout the wilderness was the way to Egypt was open. And the Bible says in their heart, they wanted to go back. And I think if we're willing to be honest, as we 
follow the Lord God as we serve him. There have been times in our life when things have been difficult, hard, where it's a struggle. And we thought, well, is it worth it? I might as well go back to how it was before I was a believer. And when we do that, we've got our minds, our eyes off of the reality of who God is. And we're just looking for tangible satisfaction. We pray prayers. Lord, give me a great marriage. But do we pray prayers that say, Lord, be glorified in my marriage? Or we just want a good marriage? We pray for healing. Do we pray, Lord, be glorified in this person's struggle in their life and their healing? Or do we just want healing? Do we just want life better? Do we just want our finances to be solved? Do we just go to God with a giant checklist and ask Him to make our lives easy? Or when we come to Him, is it all about bringing glory and honor to the Lord God Almighty? That's the surrender that I think is the struggle for for all of us. And that was... What we see in Elisha, what we see in Elijah, but when we look at Ahab, man, he's full on as fast as he can go in the other direction. So we took a a little side note uh, last week as we took a look. We didn't deal with, uh, with Elijah, but now in chapter 21, we come back to Elijah. Let's take a look. It says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the uh, Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, next to it is a generic term. Uh, they're 25 miles distant, but it's near the palace. It's not like the palace walls touch it. Um, we got one in Jezreel, and we got one in Samaria. So there's, there's 25 miles distance between those two places. Now, Naboth, his name means fruit. And he has a vineyard that is fruitful. It reminds me of many times the prophets are going to use examples just like the story we see uh, tonight to express the work of Jesus Christ in ministering to, to the people. But here's what he says. He has this vineyard. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it as a vegetable garden <laughs> because it is near It's next to my house. So, again, the phrasing that's used, we're not talking about next door neighbor, but it's close. It's near. For And for it, I will give you a vineyard better. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. So, Ahab sees something he wants. You ever known people like that? See something they want, they want something, they're going to go get it. They're going to figure out how to make that work. So that's who Ahab is. Ahab is like, I want that. Now, does Ahab have enough land? Why is he with the vineyard? He just said, I'll give you another vineyard better. Well, if you already got a better vineyard, why do you want his? It's when we look at desires of our heart, they're like that. They're like that. We've, there's this thing, I just got to have this thing. How many of us, when we were young, when it come to Christmas time, would say, Mom, Dad, give me this. If you give me this, you don't have to give me anything else. This is all I ever want. How many times has that been accurate? Yeah, never. It's never. You, you get a car, then it's going to get a scratch. It's going to break down. Sooner or later, it's going to fall apart. And you're going to want something else. You buy that house that was your dream house. And you start working on it, but the plumbing breaks. The electrical goes to pot. The, the house is deteriorating. Everything in life is falling apart. But the desire here... and and, and Ahab, he just wants, he just wants this vineyard. He wants this thing that somebody else has when he already has better than that in his own possession. It doesn't make any sense. The Bible tells us if we delight ourselves in the law of the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. That means if you take your delight in God's word, are you in agreement with God's word? Are you in agreement with what God's word teaches? Because a lot of times the effectiveness of our prayer life, the effectiveness of our witness is going to hinge on on that ability. We will oftentimes be struggling with a point. You know, we're praying for God to move or do something in a certain way. But are we disobeying God's known word? 
Do we make excuses for gossip? And we continue to gossip and continue to, to write, even though we know God hates that. He doesn't want it to be named among his witnesses. Or do we continue to live or have a relationship that God says we have no business being in? I can't tell you how many people, probably in what 15 years of ministry, I have probably had, I don't know, a bazillion uh, people come to me, women with men or men with women, who that are not believers, but they're going to get married and it's going to be okay. What did God's word say? Do not be unequally yoked with, together with an unbeliever. And so we talk about that. Bible says not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Well, that, that's for everybody else, not me. Mine's going to be different. The women will say, I'll fix him. The man will say, I don't, it won't really matter. It doesn't make any difference. And the reality is, in both cases, we see disaster. Why? Because they're not in agreement with God's word. Okay, are you in agreement with his word? We want to we have the desires of our heart. What does the Bible say? Delight in the law of the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Are you in agreement with what God's word says? So we read the Ten Commandments, and we'll all say, Yeah, I'm not a murderer, and I don't steal, and I don't do this, and I honor my father and mother, and, and we can go through that list and feel relatively good. But that's ten out of 613 what i get for wearing a sweatshirt on top of that i'm hot <laughs> i can't take it off so i'm stuck <clears throat> so back to it are we in agreement the word tells us husbands love your wives and christ love the church are you in agreement are you in agreement with that wives submit to your husbands as unto the lord are you in agreement your argument is not with me Are you in agreement with what God's word says? Delight yourselves in the law of the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The next thing we want to really recognize in that concept, I want to delight myself in the law of the Lord. Am I in alignment with what God's doing? Is my will and his will line up? Are we together? Are we going in the same direction? Are we headed to the same place? Am I lined up? with him when i'm lined up with god i'm in agreement with his word the job he gives me to do which is to be witnesses for him i will be able to fulfill through his power and his might and i will experience what many of us lack and that is finding the desires of my heart you're probably pretty sure you know what they are right Well, after all, Ahab knew the desire of his heart was that vineyard. That was it. That was end all, beat all. He's going to sell everything to get it. He'll kill, murder, and destroy to get what he wants. Because that's the desire of his heart. But if we want to know the desire of our heart, we have to be in that right place. We want to have effective prayer moving in our lives. How do we have that effective prayer? We feel with the passion of God. I'm not talking about can you make a lot of noise. I'm saying are you filled with the passion of God? Are you passionate for Him? Are you passionate in prayer? Passionate in worship? Does your life reflect the passion of God? Because James tells us the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Effective because it's in line with what God's doing. Fervent because it's passionate. You passionate about Him? I can turn on the TV... On any given Sunday, and see 40,000 people passionate about something. I'll be able to do it this weekend too. It's the playoffs. I turn on TV, what will I see? People sitting in the stands, what? They just sitting there, arms crossed. Oh, I'm going to endure this. Well, some of them may be. (laughs) If you're a Notre Dame fan, you were enduring. The idea, I want to have that passion. Passion is what ignites people. It's what gives people joy. It's what excites people. It doesn't, I'm not talking about trumping up some, some hype. I'm just talking about are you passionate? When we're passionate about things, that comes out in our life. Huh? 
Think about the things you're passionate about in your life. And when you talk to somebody, don't you get excited about it? Demonstrative about it. You, maybe you weep when you weren't intended to because you're so passionate. But that's what the scripture talks about when it says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When the scripture tells us that if you delight yourself in the law of the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart. You see, if those things aren't true, like they're not true for Ahab, we don't know what we want. You ever said those words? I have been such a pain in the backside to my wife in the past. I'm sure I'm not anymore, but in the past. I've been such a, a pain in her neck. I'm just on her case all the time. And nothing makes me happy. I'm upset about everything. And the sooner or later we'll have a conversation and she'll say to me, what do you want? And I wish I could count how many times I have said, I don't know. I just know I'm mad. I just know I'm not happy. I just know I'm frustrated. And really what I'm saying in all those things is I am not delighting myself in the law of the Lord. That I am not in agreement with God's word. That I am not in alignment with him. And that I need his touch to get me back on track. If you want to know what you really want. If, you, if those things aren't true, you have no idea. You'll chase a dream. You'll, you can make plans. You can do all those things. But like Ahab, you're looking for a vineyard you already got. You're looking for stuff you already have. And your life is filled with frustration. But Jesus said, I've come to give you life and how? Life what? More abundantly. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. My peace, that peace that that surpasses all understanding. So, am I living the abundant life? Am I experiencing a peace that surpasses all understanding? If those things aren't true, it's not to say, man, I'm a bad person. Bad, bad, bad. No, it's to say that's indicative of an issue inside of me. It's so easy to get the answer. It's so easy. Because God's amazing grace is always there. Do you know that God's going to reach out to Ahab until his last day? That God's going to offer him grace even tonight as we study? Why? Because he's the pursuer. And you're the bride. You're the prize. And he wants you more than anything else. So he will pursue you with everything he has. He desires to give you blessing. He desires to give you those things that you really want. The problem is, we don't always know what they are. Because we're not in agreement with His Word, lined up with His will. We're not delighting in His, in His law, His Word. Which simply to me is, is uh, delighting in Jesus Christ because He is the Word. So, that's where we find Ahab, man. He goes to him and he says, I'll give you anything, anything you want. So Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. Now, I know this may not seem like a very important issue, but if you look in that verse, you will see a capital L-O-R-D. That means that Naboth used the covenantal name of God. He used God's proper name. Yahweh or Yehovah. We don't know. All we know is the consonants. Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, was written only in consonants. The vowels were understood. The problem is, and everybody forgot, the high priest on his deathbed used to whisper the name of God to the next high priest. And somewhere down the line, that didn't happen anymore. So nobody knows. Now they call it the name in Israel. It's the name. The name. They don't try to pronounce it. They don't want to pronounce it. It's, it's so holy. But it's been lost. And that's so indicative of the loss of relationship. They don't know God's name anymore because they don't know God. Because he was rejected. And every person on the face of the earth who has rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior doesn't know God. 
And so there's a, bro- a break in the relationship. They don't know God's name. They don't know him. They don't know him. The Bible says God has revealed everything of him to us through Jesus Christ. We know his name. So, Naboth uses the covenantal name of the Lord. What's that mean? It means Naboth was a believer. Someone who served Almighty God in the north. Strange, weird. I don't know what he's doing there. Maybe he's a witness, trying to be a witness to people around him. But he is on the radar for Ahab. Ahab wants his vineyard, which is not as good as the vineyards he already has. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Do you realize, do you recognize, we've been talking about this a few times, but to earn the smile of heaven is to also earn the frown of hell. You cannot be doing what God wants you to do and off the radar for the devil. Do you get that? It's one way or the other. Jesus said, you're with me or against me. If we're with him, then we're against that other fella, and he doesn't just lay around and do nothing. So whatever's going on in Naboth, Naboth's life, Ahab is coming. Ahab is not a servant of the Most High God here. He's a servant of his own desires. And his own desires are lying to him. He thinks he knows what he wants. So Naboth says, no way, I can't give it to you. The law forbid the children of Israel sell their land. The land was always supposed to stay in the family's hands. See, in the United States one day, we're going to experience the same thing when we come to be owned by China or Japan or somebody else because we pay off our debt by selling pieces of property to them. In Israel, Israel is a small place. And if the tribes didn't continue to own the land that they had, eventually it could all be sold off and belong to somebody else. So, God said the land always stays in the family. Every 50 years, all debts would be forgiven and the land would be restored to the original family. So Naboth says, I I can't say it. The Lord forbid, I I can't do that. So Ahab went to his house, his house, Solon, and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no food. What a stinking baby. Now, I don't know that I've ever gotten so irritated I wouldn't eat. But it's possible. But he's so upset, he's so frustrated, he's so angry because all he wants... Just keep telling yourself this. All he wants is a vineyard that he already has a better one of. The king who has everything. All the wives he could want, all the gold he could want, all the silver he could want, all the power he could want, all anything he could want. But all he wants is a vineyard that he doesn't have that's not as good as some of the ones he already possesses. And he's in his bed and he's weepy and crying and he won't eat and he doesn't show up for dinner. And when he doesn't show up for dinner... Uh, Jezebel looks around and thinks, hey, this meal was prepared for Ahab. Where's she at? Well, I don't know. If she said that, that's what Kathy says to me if I don't eat dinner. Where's she at? So Jezebel goes and finds him. Look what happens. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? What are you doing here? Why are you whining on your bed? What's the problem? So... He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and I said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. So Jezebel said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Oh, let me interpret that for you. Act like the king. You're the king, somebody doesn't want to give you something, take it. Remember I told you that understanding Jezebel and her attitudes help us understand what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about when he mentions Jezebel in the seven letters to the seven churches. What do we see Jezebel telling Ahab to do here? What we're going to see her do totally to Naboth is exactly what we saw the church do during the Inquisition. You know, that little piece of church history where when the church was powerful and wanted more power, more gold, more stuff, 
and other people wouldn't give them what they had, that the church would call them, declare them to be a blasphemer, (coughs) a worshiper of the devil. They'd burn them at the stake, and the church would take their land. That's history. (coughs) You can't defend it. But when we read in Revelation how it is that Jesus says you have Jezebel in your midst, it helps you begin to relate. Well, what is it that we're looking for? Obviously, it's not the real Jezebel. It's a type. So as a type, what is the Lord telling us? What is the Lord telling us? Jezebel, who who would wipe out all the true prophets, who would shut down all the understanding of the Word of God, who would point everybody to false worship, who would make false accusation and steal land to make herself or her husband wealthy. And that's who Jezebel is on the pages of Scripture. And unfortunately, there was a time in church history, and depending on where you're from and what country you're in, there's currently parts of church history that are accomplishing the same kind of thing. So that's what we see going on. Well, let's see what happens. So she says, Act like a king. Arise, eat your food. Let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, she don't own it. But she's going to give it to him. She's going to give it to him. This desire of his heart. This thing he thinks he wants so bad. Just so you know, Scripture's never going to tell us anything he ever does with that land. I don't know if he ever makes a little garden out of it, a vegetable garden. He wants a little vegetable garden. He wants to tear out the whole vineyard and put a vegetable garden in. I don't, I don't know if he ever if he ever follows through with what he wants to do. Jezebel's going to give it to him. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city of, with Naboth. This is what she wrote in the letters. Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people. And seat two men. That word scoundrels, if your Bible says scoundrels, is sons of Belial. Worthless men. False accusers. Guys who will lie. Seat two men, scoundrels, uh, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So she sends this to the leaders of the towns around Naboth. So what does it mean? What do they do? They proclaim a fast. What that means is they say, there's a sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp. There's some kind of problem going on. They're going to invite Naboth as a, as a guest of honor, which ultimately comes to mean he's on trial. And they're trying to figure out what the problem is. And they're going to have two. Why are they going to have two? Because the Bible says it requires two witnesses to condemn a man. So they can find two false witnesses. Same thing they did to Christ. Same thing they did to any number. The same thing they did to Stephen. Same thing they did to any number of the martyrs. They find people who will lie. False accusations will be brought against him. So the men of the city, the elders and nobles, who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them. And it was written in the letters which she had sent. So these guys do whatever Jezebel says. Now, everybody knows it's from Jezebel, not from Ahab. Everybody knows that she's behind it, but they're going to do whatever she says. Because she is a scary lady who killed all the prophets. And so they're going to do what she says. They proclaimed the fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. So they bring Naboth in. And two men, scoundrels or sons of Belial, worthless men... Come in and sat before him, and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Both were not allowed. God told his people to pray for the king, not to blaspheme him. Hmm. I have to remind myself of that every once in a while. If I turn on the news and see a speech or some crazy nonsense going on in the country well that's the accusation that they make just like at one time the church did during the inquisition do you know that the at one time 
the third most rich nation was the Vatican. Now, I don't know if that's still true, but at one time, they were number three on the list. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, we don't even know what treasures are in there. But, but it's interesting that at the destruction of the Jewish temple, at the Arch of Titus, we see the armies of Rome carrying away the menorah. That menorah that was solid gold, a hammered work, carrying it into Rome, and nobody's ever seen it since. In the treasuries of the Vatican? I don't know, maybe. Maybe. But how did all that wealth come? Two ways. One, inquisition. Two, indulgences. Being able to buy your sin. It's a great fundraiser for the church. If you're looking for a fundraiser for a building program, just tell people, hey, this weekend you can do whatever sin you want. Just tell me what the sin's going to be and I'll tell you what it's going to cost you. And you say, well, I know I'm going to be going, I'm going to Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What's that going to cost me? Well, that, that is going to cost you 200 bucks. Make your donation and go to Vegas. Have a ball. That's what the church did. That's what the church did. The, the error of Balaam and the attitude of Jezebel in the midst of the church. Well, so we see this happen. They charge him. They bring their accusations of blasphemy. The law demanded the two witnesses. And so what's it say? It says, Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. And they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. Gosh, that just sounds like they killed one guy, didn't it? Is that what they did? If Naboth dies, who's his land go to? Go to his sons. If they die, where's the land go to? Well, their sons. So in order for the king to take the land, there can't be anybody left in the family. Oh, come on, Jackie, you're crazy. Oh, well, while we're thinking about it, just turn to the right in your Bibles from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, chapter 9. 2 Kings, chapter 9, roundabout verse 6. Second Kings 9, verse 6. Then he arose. Where, where am I? Yeah, I'm. I'm in the wrong place. <clears throat> then he arose and went into the house and poured oil on the head and said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the house of Nebed, the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs will eat Jezebel on the plotter ground at Jezreel, and there will be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Scripture, the exact same judgment that we see coming in 1 Kings, coming out of 2 Kings. And as we, as we look, as we pour through that chapter, what you're going to find is it's also for the blood of Naboth and his sons. The judgment that God is going to pour, that God is going to bring. The judgment against Naboth and his kids. So as we come back to 1 Kings, so it says in verse 15, it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, the Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possessions of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. His entire family, his sons, grandsons, anybody who was in any way able to inherit the land has been erased. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab got up, went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, 
the Jezreelite. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah comes back onto the page of scripture right after this thing has gone down. And he says, the Lord says, arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you will speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? You shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs will lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to, uh, so Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O oh, my enemy? Isn't it interesting that the man at that time who's responsible for being the voice of God, Ahab considers his enemy. That's often the, the attitude toward the prophets of God. Often that attitude is, man, you're my enemy if you speak with the voice of God. Listen to what the scripture tells us. The scripture tells us that, that to be a friend to the world is to be an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Where are my desires? Where are my wants? Where's my heart focused? What are my desires? The desires of my heart? Earthly treasures? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Why? Because it won't rust. It won't rot. Moths won't eat it. Thieves won't break in and steal it. But he goes on to tell us where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. So when we say, am I an enemy with God or am I a friend of God? Am I aligned with God or am I delighting in his law? Am I where I need to be? Then look at the desires of your heart. If the desires of your heart are for worldly possessions, then your treasure is on earth. That's where your heart is. Ahab said, you're my enemy. And he answered and said, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. You have sold yourself to do evil. The, the word tells us in the gospel of John that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The scripture lays out to us that Jesus said, I have not come to the world to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. And this is the condemnation of the world. That light has come, but men love the darkness instead of the light. And the word for love there is agapeo. That men sacrifice themselves to their dark desires. Men sell their soul. That's where the concept comes from. You have sold yourself to do wickedness. You've sold yourself to the enemy. You have decided, I'll give myself away. Man is going to give himself away to one of two entities. He will give himself away to the Lord God Almighty, or he will give himself away to anything that's not him. It will spend your eternity in one of two places, in the presence of God or in the absence of God. In the presence of God, that place is called heaven. The absence of God, that place is called hell. Gehenna, the absence of all good things, including the presence of God. No one will know anyone, because to know someone is a good thing. No one will see anyone, because to see someone would be a good thing. That's why the scripture talks of confusing tones where the fire is never quenched, yet there's eternal darkness. The, the, the idea is every good thing is absent from that place. And it is all dependent on who we will sell ourselves to. Jesus Christ paid an incredible price to redeem you and I. I don't know what else we would have him pay. He gave himself. He was incarnate, came in the flesh, lived a sinless life, was charged, accused, condemned, crucified, buried, and rose again, all in order to purchase 
you and I. So when we sell ourselves to the Lord, all it is is we have agreed to the, to the bride price that Christ has paid. Or we sell ourselves away. And that's what Ahab does, spends his whole life doing. You have sold yourself to do wickedness, he said. You have sold yourself to the dark. You have sold your soul in the absence of God because you refuse to submit to Him. And so you spend your life on the enemy's chain and think you're free. But that's not what he experiences. So he goes on to tell him, Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and cut off every, or cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. It's just judgment. Why? Because that's exactly what he did in Naboth. It's the Lex Talionis. The eye for an eye. You killed Naboth and every one of his heirs. So God says, I'm going to wipe your line off the face of the earth. You will have no heirs, no sons. The, the change of dynasty in the north happens over and over and over again. Because they never put themselves in a place where they want to want to follow the Lord. So they reap what they sow. Now what the Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he will reap. That's a law. So if I sow murder, hate, and discontent, what am I going to reap? And when you plant something, how much do you reap? Just one seed like you planted or more? That's the law of sowing and reaping. What you sow, you reap. So, that's what we see in the judgment of God against Ahab. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, just like the scripture we read in 2 Kings. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Now, by the way, that's kind of a specific prophecy. I know it may be a little gruesome, but it's specific, right? I mean, it doesn't say that the lion's going to eat her. It doesn't say that people are going to throw her in the fire, drown her in the water, or anything. It says the dogs are going to eat her. So, you have to hold on to the end of the story and see if God's word does what God says it will. Verse 24, the dogs will eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. And the birds of the air will eat whoever dies in the field. It means nobody's going to bury him. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's not being gross just for the sake of being gross. It means nobody's going to care about your family when they die. They're just going to leave them there. What do we see when a despot rules? When a dictator takes over and runs a country until there's a revolution and that dictator is deposed. What do we see? An honorary burial? Not usually, right? Well, that's what scriptures are saying. There's not going to be that. Nobody's going to care about him. Nobody's going to care for him. Nobody's going to bury him or his descendants. So what happens with the body in the open field? It goes back to the to the ground decomposes, is eaten by animals, what have you. So, in verse 25, listen to this, but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Listen, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Well, does Jezebel pay the price for Ahab's foolishness? Well, not really. Ahab's going to pay for his own choices. But what the scripture is telling us is Ahab's first choice to marry the high priestess of Baal was one that was going to cost him for the rest of his life. Just like when Solomon multiplied wives for himself. The Lord said, if you multiply wives, what will happen? They'll turn your heart away from me. So when we want to understand what Jezebel is later on in Scripture, what was her whole focus? She stirred up Ahab's heart in rebellion against God. That she is one who sows rebellion against God in a multiple forms. Murder, lying, stealing, thieving, whatever, to get whatever she wants. Verse 26. 
And so she works in, in Ahab's life. But prior to that, the word said there was no one like Ahab who sold himself. Everybody is given the same gift. Life. You get to spend it any way you want. You get to give it to whoever you want. Men get an opportunity in an earthly sense to give their lives to their wives and wives to their husbands. Some people do that choice one time in their entire life. Other people give themselves away to anybody who will take them. In the end, you will give your eternal soul to somebody. Ahab sold his for wickedness. He sold it with all his heart, undivided heart. He went after the darkness, just like Jesus said, is the reason why the world is already in condemnation. Look in verse 26. And he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So he does everything that the people around him, that God tried to to, um, keep his people away from remember he told them not to to mix with them so that their concepts wouldn't mix into their lives but it did in ahab and so it was in verse 27 when ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes put on sackcloth fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning man that's so close to repentance it's close. It's not there. But it's close. But you remember I told you God pursued him? Look what the word says. So the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he humbled himself, not because he repented, but because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring this calamity in his days. But in the days of his son, I will bring calamity on his house. God withholds that judgment until after Ahab dies. Then he'll bring that judgment upon him. And that's when we'll see Jezebel's judgment as well. So God still, even at this point, is the pursuer. Had Ahab in in those words, rather than just humbled himself, if Ahab had torn his clothes, put on sackcloth, came before the Lord and repented, what would God have done? We'd have forgiven him. He'd have made his sins like the sins of David. Though my sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. That's the promise that God gives, the pursuit that he has. The challenge to you and I as we look at the life of Ahab is that concept. Hey, what are are the desires of my heart? What am I selling myself for? What is it that I spend my life going after? Because we're going to all spend it on something. I spend a lot of time in a lot of different ways. Pursuits of a lot of different things. Only one thing will ever really matter. What will you spend in your life? What will you spend your life on? Ahab was wickedness. Will yours be righteousness? Will yours be for the love of the law of the Lord? Will yours be to have a passion for God, to really experience what Jesus promised? Because if we really think that Jesus promised us abundant life, but that was some kind of you know, metaphor for misery, uh, you're crazy. He promised abundant life. He promised peace. He said, the things you've seen me do and greater, you will do. He said, with the faith of a mustard seed, you would be able to say to a mountain, be cast into the sea. The Hebrew idiom for overcoming any trouble in your life, any problem, anything that seems too big to move. That he would give you what you need to accomplish that. If you even had the faith the size of a mustard seed. It's not that God requires a lot. It is... That our nature is in direct opposition to our spirit. 
Doesn't the word declare that? That the flesh is always at war with the spirit? So how is it that we can bring our flesh under control? What did the scripture lay out for us for ways of denying our flesh? What are some of the things we can do? Jesus, when uh, it's interesting, when he went up on top of the mountain to spend time with his disciples, and he's up there meeting with his guys, and they have the transfiguration. Jesus shows himself in all his glory to Peter, James, and John. And they see him, and there's this glorious time. They come down the mountain. You remember what they run into? A father who needs uh, his son healed, and the disciples can't do it. And Jesus calls them a faithless and perverse generation. He's talking to his guys when he says that, right? He's not talking to the people. How long will I be with you? And Jesus goes on to say, this kind only comes out with what? Prayer and fasting. See, we've heard this story before. This kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And we think he's talking about the demon. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our unbelief. He's talking about the restriction we need to place on our flesh. He's talking about the ability to deny our flesh and pursue him. The the healing of the child would take place as a result, sure. But the real miracle that's done is the death of our unbelief. If we want to see our unbelief perish, Jesus told us how to do it. That kind only comes out of prayer and fasting. Seek the Lord. See what he would have you do. See the attitude that he would have you have. But the check is, who do I resemble? Do we think we're so different from Ahab? What's the desire of our heart? That's the challenge. We're praying, seeking God, desiring to see an awakening. Part of that awakening requires me to be honest with me. And who I am and what my needs and what my struggles are. And the other part of that awakening is to pursue God with everything I have. And I still got more, I think. I haven't reached that. I don't think I've spent every last ounce of energy in pursuing him. So that means there's more of him to find, to experience. There's more joy to possess. I just got to go after him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to study your word, to seek your face, God. And as we're challenged by the scripture Tonight, as I'm challenged personally, Lord, what are the desires of my heart? What am I looking for? Are they fleshly things? Then, God, I need to mortify my flesh. Your word tells us that that we're to crucify the flesh and its desires. You, You tell us that we can experience so much more than I think we are experiencing. And, and that is going to be an, a result of, of how we treat the desires of our heart. Do we delight in the law of the Lord? Are we in agreement with his word and alignment with his will? And where we struggle with unbelief, have, have we been able to put that unbelief down? Do we, do we disconnect from the world and pursue the Lord? Well, that's all prayer and fasting is. There's no rule. There's no rule in the word that says fasting means you don't eat nothing, don't drink nothing. You sit in a cave and in a lotus position and wait for God to speak to you. Fasting is to deny the world and pursue God. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. Lord, I pray that you would enlighten your people give us an awakening to how we might feed our spirit and starve our flesh so that we can be moved by the passion of God 
So the joy of the Lord can be our strength because we are truly experiencing his joy. God, I pray that you would move in and among your people in a mighty way as we just seek to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out in a word of worship. So I invite you to stand with me. We'll uh, praise the Lord together. And I'll meet you guys out in the foyer for a time of fellowship. God bless you guys. Go in peace.
to you God be glorified in our lives submitted and committed to you in Jesus name we pray amen God bless you guys have a great night